Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Oh, get out of here with England's greatest detective, Gavin. Dude wasn't even a cop. And also, cokehead. Huge cokehead. Tons of blow. Yes. The following podcast contains... We're more likely to believe an important local businessman than a foul-mouthed jerk from out of town. Foul-mouthed? Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When your career role model was played by Abe Vigoda, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 354, Let's Be Careful Out There, part two of Copaganda edition of the show, where we talk about how the 70s and 80s changed cop shows and cops in general. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Anthora Cup, that blue and white Greek paper urn cup that lets the world know the cup may say it's happy to serve, but you personally are not. Since 1963, this disposable coffee cup has adorned the weary hands of New Yorkers as they solved murders, chased perps, and shouted profanities at tourists to get out the fucking way. The Anthora Cup knows you're tired, and you've had it up to here with a screwball antics of your partner, the mayor's complaining, and not being able to crack this case. The Anthora Cup, the vessel that held a regular coffee, that's milk two sugars, you know, regular, for New York's finest for four generations. In an emergency, you would be the first one I would call. You should call me first. I need time to put my teeth in. (laughs) You busy Thursday night, Fish? Why? Well, I thought you'd get your wife. I'd pick up a chick. We'd go out and have some laughs. I'd like to, but I can't. My wife made plans to soak her feet Thursday night. (laughs) Hello, hello. Good morning. How's everything this morning? Boy, you're feeling chipper today. Found a great new cereal. Doctor's bread. <laughs> I slept like a lot. You eat cereal before you go to sleep? What else have I got to do? <laughs> what is that? A tuna fish omelet. <laughs> Tell me what happened. What makes you think something happened? You've been home for lunch three times since Roosevelt died. It's a good thing I got bad feet. The way they feel right now, if I had good feet, I'd be worried. (laughs) Drinking should be done in the privacy of one's home, where it's necessary. For me, it began with afternoon reruns of a 60s show. I'd get home from school, dig around for something to eat, turn on the television to catch the shows that led into the afternoon cartoons. In my local market, that meant the last half of emergency where Gage and DeSoto would be pulling some hapless victim from their crumpled vehicle. Station 51, KMG 365. Well, 51, 10-4, KMG 365. And that was cool! But it was the show that came on after emergency that always set my blood racing. All units in the vicinity. Officer needs help. 9226 Van Arden. Shots fired. 1 Adam 12, handle code 3. 1 Adam 12, roger. Malloy and Reed weren't hard-bitten detectives drinking coffee over a dead body. They were just regular beat cops doing their best to keep a lid on the boiling cauldron of crime that was Los Angeles. 
Those were the days before the Rampart Division became synonymous with, you know, a widespread police corruption ring. Though to be real about it, <laughs> it was really fucking corrupt when Adam Trout was on the air as well. Why did a little fat boy with no family association with law enforcement love cop shows so much? You were being bullied day in and day out. Yeah, but that wasn't the reason. No, the reason was is that I also really just wanted to be Big Damn Heroes, sir. I was on a steady diet of high fantasy where brave heroes defended the hapless and the helpless against the forces of evil, and I knew, I knew, despite what my parents might have thought about my Dungeons & Dragons playing, that I could never be a knight in shining armor. But I kind of thought that maybe I could be the modern equivalent of one, and television was busy teaching me that the said modern equivalent of knights in shining armor were the brave men and women of law enforcement. TV said that? every goddamn day. At the same time, I was conflicted because television also told me that cops might not be big damn heroes. It was pretty clear that Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane was not, uh, well, he, he wasn't a villain, but he, he, he wasn't one of the good guys. Peters, you know what you are? You're a dipstick, a 14 carat dipstick. The 70s were a strange moment in copaganda, the name given to how Hollywood has portrayed cops in film and television to make American be Americans believe that living in a low-level police state is kind of fun and cool because there were still plenty of shows and movies demonstrating the pre-Hays Code kind of police shows, but there were also a lot of shows that suggested that just maybe that all cops were, you know, bastards. At least the 80s came along and cleared all that up. So, let's talk copaganda in the 70s and 80s. Last week, I laid out all the ways that Hollywood and cops wound themselves up in a big old ball of incestuous fuckery with J. Edgar Hoover and the Los Angeles Police Department. Learning how to make propaganda without it looking like it's propaganda. Yeah, you gotta hand it to him, all right. And if you're just joining the show, which, come on. You're not. You should go back to the previous episode and check that out. It isn't mandatory, but I could really use the download numbers. This week, I want to talk about how Hollywood began to push back against the system and made movies and television shows that show the cops weren't the paragons of virtue they'd been made out to be for the previous generation. By the 1970s, the entertainment industry was well and truly split into two separate and distinct camps, the film industry and the television industry. They didn't exist in the same shared universe like they do today. To a generation who grew up with film, TV crossovers and the superhero genre, it sounds unthinkable when I say these two shared communities kinda hated each other. They lived and worked together, but when you brought up television to the movie crowd, the movie crowd was all, oh yeah, yeah, those people. In no other genre was this divide more apparent than when it came to portrayals of cops. To best demonstrate the difference, I point out that Adam-12 was at the high point of its seventh season run the same year this movie hit the big screen. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? On TV, police were still very much the red, white, and blue hero archetype personified by the generic good guyness of Malloy and Reed, and joining them at the time was Hawaii Five-O. Book him, Dano. Where Jack Lord Steve McGarrett, as Irish a name as ever there was, fought crime in paradise, which apparently had quite the murder problem in the 70s that no one else was aware of. 
We'll come back to the criminal hotbed of Hawaii in a future episode. Then there was the rumpled yet brilliant Inspector Columbo. You know, there's only one thing that I'm not clear about. Actually, uh, there is one thing. One other thing. One more question, sir. The thing I love about Columbo is the bad guys in that show were always rich fuckers. The schlubby Peter Falk was always taking down some snooty high society shithead for some kind of crime or another. Now, if you are looking to change up your pace a little bit, you could tune in to the sheriff of Taos, New Mexico on loan for no explained reason to the NYPD. Chief? McLeod? McLeod was a fish-out-of-water cowboy in the big city, but still, all of these characters adhered to the simple formula that cops were good and noble heroes who followed the rules. Meanwhile, over on the big screen, you had Harry. I'm just wild about Harry, and Harry's wild about me. Interesting but utterly irrelevant aside, Dirty Harry was almost played by a war hero turned actor Audie Murphy rather than Clint Eastwood. But Murphy died in a plane crash right before filming began. So Clint became the iconic Harry Callahan. Inspector Harry Callahan was a violent, racist iconoclast to whom the rules simply just did not apply. And the only thing bigger than Harry's 44 Magnum was his swinging dick bad attitude. He routinely used excessive force, tortured his prisoners, and was pretty much as bad as the criminals he, he chased. Dirty Harry was called a fascist back in 1971, when that term, unlike today, was almost exclusively reserved for actual Nazis. Fucking fascist! Harry gave this screen contemporary Popeye Doyle, played by Gene Hackman in 1971's French Connection, a run for his money for worst cop ever. I debated using Popeye for my example. I went with Dirty Harry because the many sequels and much larger cultural impact of Eastwood's character on the public in general and definitely on law enforcement. You want some fun? You want some fun sometimes? Quote a Dirty Harry line at a party full of drunk cops and watch their reaction. Trust me, it's, a, it's not one of mild disapproval for his violence and brutality. I should know I went to a lot of these parties. Cinema scholars wrote of the changing face of the police hero, quote, was Harry Callahan a right-wing fascist cop? This is something that's been debated for 50 years. It will continue to be debated for years to come. There's no right or wrong answer. The case could certainly be made that characters like Popeye Doyle and Harry Callahan were the first modern anti-heroes. Roger Ebert famously wrote, If anybody is writing a book about the rise of fascism in America, they ought to take a look at Dirty Harry. America was rapidly changing country and needed new heroes beside John Wayne and Gary Cooper to reflect this change. Films such as The French Connection and Dirty Harry clearly were the result of this, and these films could redefine how screen heroes would look and act for many years to come, unquote. Dirty Harry opened the door to portray cops as total fucking bastards, and you might think this would Amer make Americans say... Is that a good thing? Cause but it didn't. Because it made Americans go, fuck yeah, give me some more of that. Quoting from PopMatters.com, quote, Police procedural dramas with edgier cops soon followed with ABC's Streets of San Francisco in 1972, starring Michael Douglas and Carl Malden, taking direct inspiration from the film and its success. The ABC TV shows Toma in 1973, starring Tony Masante and Susan Strasberg, as well as Beretta in 1975, starring Robert Blake and Ron Thompson, owes debts to Dirty Harry. Ironically, ABC was the very same network that passed on Dirty Harry as a TV movie, unquote. 
You know, <laughs> even in the 70s, Dirty Harry would have been a really different movie if it was shown on ABC broadcast. But things were changing on television as well. What you could talk about and show was shifting as the mores of the time. And even tried and true cop shows were shifting too. 1975 brought a show that was and still is hailed as one of the most realistic cop shows of all time. Yeah, Barney Miller. <laughs> Shocked? You shouldn't be. Now, I know most of you only know Barney Miller from Nick and Knight, but what you probably don't know is how cops saw and still see the show Barney Miller. We, or they, watched and saw their day-to-day lives reflected for the very first time on television. There were no police chases, no shootouts, no brutal interrogations. It was paperwork, interviews, paperwork, politics, paperwork, colorful citizens, paperwork, politics, and not a little ennui. We thought it was a comedy. It was a comedy, and a good one, but it found humor in the lives of the characters and their lives were of their jobs, even if they might wish it otherwise, because that is kind of how police work really is. Encyclopedia.com writes, quote, Barney Miller was notable for other reasons as well. Critics Harry Castleman and Walter J. Posdriak explain that real-life police departments have praised Barney Miller as being one of the most realistic cop shows around. The detectives rarely draw their guns and spend more time in conversation paperwork and resolving minor neighborhood squabbles than in blowing away some Mr. Big Drug King, unquote. And the Television Academy writes of the show, quote, decades after its cancellation, Barney Miller retains a devoted following among real-life police officers who appreciate the show's emphasis on dialogue and believably quirky characters. It's low-key portrayal of cops going about their jobs. During his appearance on John Favreau's independent film channel talk show Dinner for Five, Dennis Farina, who worked as a Chicago policeman before turning to acting, called Barney Miller the most realistic cop show ever seen on television. Hal Linden has told interviewers that he is still occasionally call captain by working police officers, unquote. Then you had Starsky and Hutch, which was rightly placed for how it showed the bonds between partners Paul Starsky and Ken Hutch, which is another facet of police work that you didn't see a lot of exploration during early cop shows. David Soule, who played Hutch, commented on the relationship in an interview in 1999, quote, The point is that there were moments of tenderness and moments of concern, uh, as much as there were frivolous moments and moments of fun, too. There were fights, there were punch-outs, there were misunderstandings. It was about friendships. That's what the show was about. It was about friendships. We just happened to be cops, unquote. In fact, some viewers had issues with the close relationship between Starsky and Hutch. And the line quoted from the Wikipedia article on the show put it this way, quote, while likely normal by American social standards since the 1990s, such body language conflicted with the 1970s norms of emotionally restrained masculinity. In a show documentary tape made during the show's run that can be found on YouTube, the narrator intones that some Hollywood industry types refer to the characters as, quote, French-kissing primetime homos, unquote. Soul verified the statement in a 1992 cast reunion interview in the United Kingdom. And, in fact, this is exactly what Soul said about this Quote, well, when people don't really know what to do with strong male relationships, they call them gay, which is stupid, you know. I, I think when you have a friend that's male and a really good friend, there's no bond that's stronger. Throughout history, the strongest relationships have been male to male, unquote. To be honest, when I was a kid, 
I, I never saw any gay subtext in the Starsky and Hutch, but I was also like eight, and I was mostly watching it for the car. I should pause here to mention a show that didn't really have an impact on how cop shows thought about themselves in a professional way, but definitely changed how people, well, <laughs> some people. You mean the women? <laughs> yeah, also probably not a, a few gay men uh, saw cops, and uh, the way they saw it was uh, sexy. Because Eric Estrada's Francis Frank Llewellyn Ponch Poncharelli was fucking hot. Tight fitting uniform, snug in the crotch, and those high leather boots. Mm, Daddy can put handcuffs on me anytime. Sorry, what, what was I saying? Oh, 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 oh right, Chips, right. Uh, uh, Chips, Chips was a good show, and Ponch made a lot of women in the 70s want to ride a cop's Harley, if, if, if you know what I mean. But perhaps the most influential genre show of the era had to be Hill Street Blues. I still gotta get chills when I hear the theme. What Barney Miller was to the detectives, Hill Street was to the beat cop. It showed a hard scrabble world of not Chicago that urban cops from the real Chicago to the New York City to New Los Angeles all recognized. The Chicago Tribune wrote in 1986, quote, sometimes it's too realistic, said John Nalapa of the Chicago Police Department's Grand Central Area Property Crimes Unit. You don't want your family to know that, yes, we do get shot, we do get stabbed, and that kind of stuff, Nalapa said. Hill Street is the one, only one of the current cop shows that he watches with any enthusiasm. And not coincidentally, it's the only one that approaches his own experience. The sergeant who holds the roll call is quite typical, Nalapa said. You can find his type very officious anywhere, and then there are clowns like Officer Andy Rinko at every police station, too. And a guy like Detective John LaRue, like when he was messing with that guy's lunch, putting a cockroach in a sandwich. Everywhere you turn, there's a guy like that, unquote. As a 19-year-old rookie, first going out on patrol, however far away it was from Hill Street, it was the show that most shaped how I saw myself as a cop. A tired warrior doing his best he could against the criminals and the system, and all of that was total bullshit. But that's the power of good television. And you know what? It wasn't just me because our sergeant, my first base where I was stationed, closed out every roll call with the catchphrase from the show, let's be careful out there. If the Emmy award-winning, widely respected Hill Street Blues with a serious take on the gritty world of policing in the 1980s, he was hardly a ratings darling. In fact, Hill Street barely made the cut for renewal in his first season. But in 1984 came a different cop show created by a former Hill Street writer that captured a totally different vibe for a totally different audience. <laughs> Thank you. 
Levi starring Don Johnston and Philip Michael Thomas as a Crockett and Tubbs. Two Miami detectives smack in the middle of a cocaine cowboy of my, cowboy era of Miami. And this show, despite featuring police work, was not an actual cop show. It was a soap opera for dudes whose protagonist just happened to be cops. So in other words, you hated it. No. Fuck no, Miami Vice was awesome. The action, the music, the cars, the women, the guest stars. Fucking loved Miami Vice. And so did a lot of young male Americans. If the show never went to number one in the ratings, it was consistently popular with a lucrative demographic of young men under 35, which kept it on the air for about six or seven years. Miami Vice literally created the male fashion aesthetic in the back half of the 1980s. The New York Times wrote in 2006, quote, the extent to which the show played a part in the sartorial recasting of the American man is difficult to overestimate. Before Miami Vice, which was conceived as a cop show for the MTV generation, adult males were not often in the habit of wearing t-shirts under sports coats or shoes minus socks. Most guys without ties in the 1980s would have been considered slobs or candidate for the unemployment line. Pastel colored trousers were reserved for caddies, pastel colored vehicles for pimps. Suits in the late Reagan era were still substantially lined and padded and rigidly shaped as barca loungers, although with sleeves. Loose and crumpled garments were considered workwear for convicts or gigolos. Hardly anyone without a spreading cup wore a straw hat. Although it's hard now to remember the radical statement these gestures once constituted before Miami Vice, few men except bank tellers rolled their jacket sleeves. And oh, about the only folks who flipped their blazer collars were the singer George Michael or patrons in some Fort Lauderdale gentleman's only bar. It's the first point in fashion history where you can really show a TV having influence on fashion. And a two-day growth of beard before Miami Vice was a sure sign of an impending bumhood. Miami Vice made stubble cool, unquote. It's hard to explain to people that didn't live through the time how our love-hate relationship with cocaine and the cocaine trade made the 1980s. I mean, I know I joke about everyone doing coke a lot back in the 1980s, but that's only because a lot of people were doing a lot of coke back in the mid-80s. Even outside the well-heeled New York nightclubs, there was always someone at some party with some Bolivian marching powder that shouted in the middle of the night, Let's do some cocaine. White people loved cocaine. I mean, it wasn't just white people that loved cocaine, but white people loved cocaine a lot. And if you had ready access to cocaine, that meant that you made it as a white person. The same way having a little red sports car, a second wife half your age, and a first generation cell phone let other white people know you had achieved peak whiteness. And America even kind of loved the drug runners. I mean, not loved it like they loved Reagan and the military industrial complex, but the idea of being a drug runner. It harkened back to the end of the old days of prohibition when society kind of rooted for the bad guys a little bit. It showed in the people cast to play the drug dealers in Miami Vice. And I'm sorry, Phil Collins did a fine job acting in the show, but the guy who wrote and sang Groovy Kind of Love just could never be a bad guy. I mean, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's my unironic love for Phil Collins, but no, I can't see Phil Collins killing anyone. As a cop show, Miami Vice came up short. Ask any cop back in 1985 if their life revolved around driving six-figure automobiles and poolside interviews with supermodels roaming around the background, and their answer would have been a very plain and simple, you are fucking stupid and you are fucking ignorant, Dave indicator of their disdain. An Orlando, Florida vice cop told the Orlando Sentinel back in 1985, quote, 
even if one were confiscated, no local agent would get to drive it, says Malone Stewart, the MBI lieutenant who runs the vice station. How long do you think a car like that would go unnoticed in Orlando? In Miami, maybe an undercover cop could get away with it, but here, never. You couldn't do anything covert with it, unquote. This isn't to say cops didn't like the show, but they in no way considered it real, and no cop in those days was going to show up in a linen suit with rolled up sleeves and six grand of jewelry draped around their neck. And the police work on the show was pretty sloppy, too. The Museum of Broadcast Communications wrote about the show, quote, Miami Vice was less about solving the mysteries than it was a contemporary morality play. Indeed, Crockett and Tubbs were often inept detectives, mistakenly arresting the wrong person for a crime. Instead of Columbo-like problem-solving, the program stressed detectives' ethical dilemmas. Each week, these temptable men were situated in a world of temptations. They were conversant in the language of the underworld, skilled in his practices and prepared to use both for their own ends. It wouldn't take much for them to cross the line, the thin line between their actions and those of the drug lords and gangsters. One such ethical dilemma frequently posed on the show was the issue of vigilante justice, where the detectives pursuing evildoers out of commitment to law and order or to exact personal revenge. Often, it was very hard to distinguish the lawbreakers from the law enforcers. Indeed, one Miami Vice season ended with Crockett actually becoming a bona fide gangster, his ties to law enforcement neatly severed by a case of amnesia, unquote. Like I said, Miami Vice wasn't a cop show. It was a soap opera for dudes that just happened to feature cops. What the show did do is demonstrate the dramatic shift in movies and television went through in the 70s, 80s, away from the Hayes Code J. Edgar Hoover approved. Where did you get that dress? It's awful and those shoes and that coat. Jeez. Man in a suit to a closer reflection of what the men and by this time women who were cops actually were. They could also be betrayed as sometimes less than heroic, flawed human beings that they actually were. It made watching a movie or TV show about cops less indoctrination and more entertainment. To be sure, the message would still be a good law-abiding citizen, but Hollywood began to show the many shades of gray that are real people behind the badge. If things had kept along like this, we might have had a different relationship with cops. But something changed in the late 80s and early 90s in our relationship with crime and law enforcement, and it was rapidly reflected in the entertainment we watched on television and in theaters. It wouldn't take long before cops were back in suits, and cop shows veered back towards the early days of police procedurals, and it all started with a very distinctive sound. And that is where we will pick up next week for the conclusion of Copaganda. That is it for our show this week. I got to admit, this series is trying really hard to spit out of control on me. I just wanted to riff about cop shows and maybe say some mean things about the police state. And he keeps trying to turn into a graduate thesis. I don't know if you've ever read a graduate thesis, but they, they there's a rule. They're not funny. Well, neither is this right here. That's a fair point. Still, I managed to bring it around with that bit about Miami Vice. You could uh, see the first draft where I tried to explain how propaganda works. You wouldn't like it, though you, you may still. I, I got one more show to write. Speaking of things you don't want to do, rate and review this show wherever you get your podcast. It helps others find us, listen to us, and want to turn you in for excessive use of force while recommending podcasts. If you would like to kick a buck towards keeping crime off the streets, meaning keeping me from staggering home from a bar singing off-key, donate to our Patreon at patreon.com. That's slash what the hell podcast so I can drink at home 
and sing off key for my neighbors. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to in the closing because he is tired of my screwball antics and he will have my podcasting badge and microphone if you don't. And so for me, Dave, nice girls, not one defect. Cellophane shrink wrapped, so correct. Bledsoe, producer. Red dogs under illegal legs. She looks so good he gets down and begs. My, that sounds risque. Gavin and all the fictional boys down at the precinct, we want to say that when you're watching the detectives, keep in mind that if they're shooting people and beating them up, that's a bad thing. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Now, you know, Stacey and I, we watch a ton of Law & Order. Yeah. Huge Law & Order buff. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.